Well, good morning, everybody. Our Old Testament scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19. That can be found on page 22 of your pew Bibles. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And here's the word of God. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. <clears throat> on the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Our New Testament reading is in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 7, verses 19 through 28, and that's on page 893 of the Pew Bibles, again from the English Standard Version. Jesus is teaching in the temple in the middle of the Feast of Booths, beginning with verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we 
continue to pray for the work of the members of the pastor search team as they continue the process of seeking our next senior pastor. We do pray that you would bless their efforts to your glory and our good. As the scripture reading teaches us this morning, Jacob was in a desolate place and did not know that you were there. Jesus was teaching in the temple, and yet the people did not know who he was. As scripture teaches, we know you truly only if it is revealed unto us by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we know you, that we are adopted into your family, that you promise us that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Please be with Jerry as he brings us your word. Please be with us as we receive it. May the teaching equip us to be better suited for your service. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at our text uh, this morning. God is at work in, in, in among us and in the search team, and he's at work in the text we're looking at too this morning. It's John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, nope. Well, he said, I am not. And, and they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And finally, they said, then who are you? Give us an answer to those to take back to those who sent us. Uh, who do you, what do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? And John replied, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which even though a lot of years have passed and the cultures have changed, yet speaks to us today because it's inspired by you and is self uh, and culturizing. We can understand it. Would you bring that understanding to our minds and hearts this morning? We ask in Christ's name, amen. So this... Uh, man in his 80s or 90s who's living in Asia Minor and was probably the youngest disciple of Christ. He might have been a late teenager when Jesus uh, undertook his public ministry and was crucified. So this is about 60 years later. And he's the last man standing. He's the last apostle that's still alive. That generation is passing away. And so those around him said, before you die, would you write out some of the things you've been teaching us about Jesus, so we will have a written record after you're gone. <clears throat> he said, yeah, I can do that. And then he wrote it, and he says, and he used this uh, literary form in, in, uh, invented by Matthew, Mark, and Luke called gospel. And he used that literary form. Get my hand out of my pocket. 
I was at a church, and uh, I was telling those guys, the funny things that happened to you, I had my thing on my waist, and I had to turn it on, and I took it out, and Sandy was here talking about something, and I couldn't get back, back on my belt. I'm like, you know, like this. I turned to Sandy, well, keep talking for a minute, and let me get this thing, you know, straightened out here, and people come up. Um, so John says at the end of his book, John 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, when you study literature, particularly ancient literature, the first thing you do is say, well, what what does the author say about what's he trying to do? Is he trying to write fiction or history or scientific inquiry or biography or what is it? You know, when you go online, if you've got some of those, you know, you've got a, a tablet or a pad and, you know, you like to read online like I do, you go up there and it has about a dozen different categories and you pick which category you want to read, right? And this is gospel and the purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is sent by God and that being sent by God, you may have eternal life. So he tells you up front. And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I saw and heard, and then I'm going to tell you what Jesus said, what I heard him say. Then I'm going to show you what Jesus did, what I saw him do, often signs and miracles, and then you decide. And then I'm going to bring some other people in to give testimony. I'm I'm going to give testimony. John the Baptist is going to give testimony. His disciples are going to give testimony. A woman at a well is going to give testimony. Uh, A guy who belongs to the Sanhedrin is going to give testimony. And then you decide, you decide if he's the Messiah. And then, believing in him, you can have life through his name. But then he ups the ante because he begins in verse 1 of his book, this thing called a prologue, in the beginning was the word. In other words, before everything began, he existed. Whoa. And he said, and then the word was with God. In other words, separate from God, but with God. So not created in the beginning. In our case, in the beginning was the word. He already existed, uh, not created. And then he was with God, separate from God. Then, and he was God. Now, whoa, I thought we were talking about this guy that God made a prophet and sent as the Messiah. No, he he was not created. He always existed. He was with God, and he was God. Now, that raises the ante significantly, so you better have some good evidence in this book, right? Then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God. What? What? You mean he's just not a prophet like Elijah? He's eternal, preexistent God? And now you're telling me he became a human being? How did that work? Well, he, he had a, a nature of deity, and he took on, you just read, the nature of human beings in a body, and those two natures were put together to form one person. One person, two natures, human and divine. 
Well, by this time, our mind is just blown, you know. He says, okay, let me show you what it looked like. Call your first witness. And the first witness is John the Baptist. Well, why him? Because he was a fascinating person, and he had a tremendous influence and a lot of credibility. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus himself says, if you can believe it, no person, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest human being that ever lived. And then he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Now put all this together, okay? And John had such an impact that 250 years later, one of the church fathers said, some of his disciples are still among us and claim that he was the Messiah. He was the real thing. The way he lived, the way he taught, the way he died, authenticated that he was a great prophet, probably the greatest of prophets. So calling him as a witness is real important, but it's also necessary to say, but wait a minute, he wasn't the Messiah. In fact, he looked more like a Messiah than Jesus. You know, he's going around eating honey. He's wearing skins. He's living out in the desert. Yeah, that's our idea of a godly person, right? Because godly person doesn't wear regular clothes, and he doesn't eat regular food, and he doesn't live in a regular house. So obviously, he's a better candidate for Messiah than Jesus, because you know what Jesus did? He wore regular food, ate regular food, wore regular clothes, lived in a regular house, grew up in a regular family, and had a regular job. What kind of Messiah is that? So people naturally said, you know, John fits the picture. So you've got this balance. No, he wasn't the Messiah, but his witness is very important. So let's begin. How, uh, this is part of what he introduces John. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem, uh, Jews, Jews, 70 times in this book, uh, the author talks about the Jews because the author, John, the apostle, not only wants to give people a choice, accept or reject Jesus based on what he said and what he did, he wants to draw a contrast and say, but here's what happens if you don't. So, Jesus is the light of the world, and there's darkness. He comes to his own, and his own rejected him. So this plays out. So John, being a sensitive, caring person, said, I want to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah so you can have life through his name, but I want you to understand what happens if you don't. And he illustrates it with people. So these people are coming to John when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who he was, okay? John was baptizing. That's why it's called the Baptist, the baptizer, John the baptizer. And it was not a Jewish baptism. It was actually a Gentile proselyte baptism for repentance and washing and preparation for a new life. 
In fact, when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to learn the Torah, he had to be circumcised, and then he would be ba- take his clothes off, be baptized, and then new clothing would be given to him, symbolizing that he'd been washed of his sin and come into a new life. John was doing that type of baptizing, and he was doing it for Jews. Jews didn't get baptized. They were already the children of God through Abraham. They'd already been circumcised. They already had ablutions that they did. You know, they washed their hands. They washed the pots. They had all these things. They didn't need to be baptized. And John the Baptist is baptizing Jews like they're proselytes, like their sins have to be washed away and repented of. And so they're saying, why are you doing this? And bukus of people. You know what that sign is? Boku? Lots of people came to him from Jerusalem and the surrounding area because they felt the need to prepare themselves for God coming into their lives. Guess who didn't go out and get baptized? The priests, the Pharisees, the Levites. They were asking, but they weren't partaking. You know why? They didn't think they needed it. They didn't need to repent. And uh, Jesus said, I've come for the sick. A physician doesn't need to come for people that are well. I come for the sick. The people getting baptized knew they needed something. The other leaders didn't think they did. But the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So everybody needs to repent and have a Savior to pay for their sins. Some realized it and some didn't. Now, if you were sitting here this morning and you had unknown to yourself cancer in your body, breast cancer, rectal cancer, what would you give to find out that you had that cancer while it's still treatable? Thank you. You could be cured before it killed you. What would you give for that knowledge? What would you give to figure out if you're sick or if you're well? What would you give to find out whether you needed a Savior or not? before eternity closed in on you and the choice was decided. Well, that's what the church and Jesus and I this morning say, you need a Savior. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are two groups of people here, those that were going out and getting baptized because they felt the need to be cleansed from their sin, and those who did not. And those who did got eternal life, and those who didn't did not. And those who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, through him received eternal life, lived forever, and those who didn't did not. So that's why John is drawing this contrast. And so they're coming to him, and they're saying, uh, he did not fail to confess. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that's been sent in order to uh, represent God and deliver the nation Israel. 
the woman at the well said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. He who comes will explain everything. And he said, no, I'm not him. Okay. And they said, well, then, are you Elijah? Now, this is what it says in Malachi. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. They were expecting from Malachi, Elijah. They even thought he'd be reincarnated or something. He said, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said he was Elijah because he came in the spirit and the form and the person of Elijah. He did the job of Elijah. But Elijah was not going to be reincarnated. And so they said then, uh, are you the prophet? And this is because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from you fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This is point one of the sermon. You know, we're finally getting to point one. This is authority. They said to him, by what authority do you baptize? And notice, he respectfully answered them because it was a legitimate question. He was baptizing. Was it a Messiah? No. Was Elijah? No. Was it the prophet that Moses predicted? Notice they're using scripture to test him, to examine him. And he graciously and politely said, no, no, no. You see, we have the right to ask about authority for people. I remember when I was growing up, uh, the great singer Pat Boone was doing baptisms in his uh, swimming pool in his backyard. And he was in a teenager. I remember thinking, what gives him the right to, to baptize people? He's a singer. He's not a minister. He, what, what, what in the world is going on here? And that's what they're saying to John. What gives you the authority to baptize people? You see. So when we uh, call a pastor, when you call a pastor to this church, you're going to ask him, by what authority do you stand before us and preach the word of God? And the search team is saying, are you theologically trained? Have you been examined by your presbytery and approved and ordained? Uh, do you hold to the basic doctrines that we hold to? Do you have a track record of ministry and discipleship and preaching for effect? By what authority? In fact, I don't know if you uh, noticed, you know, when Phil preached, prepared and preached a great sermon, okay? And who did the benediction? If you don't recall, but he graciously sat down and I did because I'm ordained and he's not. And the way we distinguish in our church is that if you're ordained, you have the authority to bless God's people. But if you're not ordained, you can't. Authority. And John did not argue. He did not speak them disrespectfully. He answered the question, no, I don't do it by anything. Well, then who are you? By what authority do you do this? He said, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He said, I have authority that doesn't fit those categories, another authority. That is called extraordinary, unique authority, and you better be willing to back it up. 
See, there's ordinary, I have ordinary authority. You see that? Through ordinary means of theological education and examination and testing and, and listening and all that kind of stuff. He was claiming extraordinary authority. Once in the history of man, there'll be this person that comes and prepares the way for the Messiah. That's what he was claiming. Wow. We'll get into more of this because John the Baptist comes up two or three more times and there'll be more. So first, authority. Second, responsibility. What was John the Baptist's job? He says, look, all I'm doing is baptizing in water. Ain't no big thing. One is coming after me who was before me because he, he was not created. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal thong, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. My only job is to prepare the way for him so that people will hear him. And next week, we're going to look at the dove descending and him saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, number one, authority. Number two, responsibility. I'm glad for John the Baptist because I can't save anybody from their sins. But I can point you to one who can, whose sandal thong I am not worthy to untie, who existed before I was ever born, who can give you new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can do that. And if you think about it, what do we as a church do? We try to make smooth the way of the Lord, you see. I was talking to someone who was visiting our church a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, you built this beautiful sanctuary, and it's easy to worship here. Because someone dreamed, and look at these soaring ceiling and the stone and the beautiful windows and the pews and the carpet to smooth the way for the Lord to come into your life. And we got people that come here every week and mow all this grass. So when you drive up, you think how smooth and beautiful the way is. We got people that teach your children. We have people at the doors handing out bulletins most Sundays. Music that's planned and prepared, we're smoothing the way because we can't save anybody, but Jesus can, but we want to make the way smooth so that you can come to him and so that he can come to you. So we're all in a way John the witness, and every time you do something in this church to smooth the way, you are serving the Lord. You are smoothing the way for someone to come to him. Good for you. John the witness would be proud of you. Authority, responsibility, third, presence. He said to them, there stands one among you whom you do not recognize. Like I said, he didn't look like a Messiah. But see, that's what Jacob, you know, he woke up and said, God was in this place that Bill read and I did not recognize it. Jesus said, when two or three of you gather in my name, there I am with you. Matthew 28, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, although I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money, 
and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The presence of God. God promises his presence. Jesus said, I'm with you always now. How can that be if he forever has a body, a human body, flesh, that localizes him? And he's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven because that's where he ascended. How can he then be present with us this morning? Think about that, and we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> now, put your thinking caps on. You've got five minutes of this, okay? He is a human being in a human body, and he can only be in one place at one time. He's at the right hand of the Father. But he's also eternal God. The Word became flesh, an eternal God. The psalm we started out worship, wherever I go, high, deep, light, dark, you're always there. By being omnipresent, he can be present with us. But the main way that Jesus is with us is through the Holy Spirit. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. So that if you're born again, you're born again through the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwells you, and the Holy Spirit does not speak of himself, but speaks only about Jesus. Is that coming together? His omnipresence means he's here with us, but primarily his Holy Spirit is making him real to us. See, this presence is important because Jacob didn't know he was there. The Jews, he was standing right there. In fact, I'm amazed. If I were them, I'd say, where? I'm not leaving until I find out who he is. I'm going to stay. And then John later says, I baptized him. The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. God said, that's it. Behold the Lamb of God. I'm going to hang around until I find out. They didn't. They went back to whoever sent them and said, we don't know who he is. They just walked away. Don't you want to see Jesus? One of the greatest Bible teachers in America to the largest denomination was speaking in the deal. And, and it was said, I look in the Bible and I don't see the presence of God today like he was then. And so the people for an hour laid on the floor and cried and prayed, God, reveal yourself. Because they didn't think God was there. But I read in Acts 2.42, this is what it says. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. That's called ordinary means. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's not flames of fire from the Holy Spirit. What was it? It was four things. The apostles' teaching, Bible teaching and preaching, fellowship. This, you know, we have a 30-minute fellowship. You're invited to it. Breaking of bread, you know, through fellowship and through communion, and then prayer. If churches do those four things, Jesus is present. And churches do those four things, the Holy Spirit uses those like building blocks or chlorophyll in a plant and starts building up Christ in you individually and in us corporately. That's how Jesus is present. But some people, like Jacob and like those Jews, don't recognize that Jesus is with us. He's with us in the Word. He's with us in the fellowship. He's with us in communion. He's with us in the prayer. 
He is right here with us. He is present. We need to recognize that because that makes all the difference in the world. He's among us. We should recognize him and praise him, even if it's by ordinary means that we're trusting God to work through. You see, if you need all those other things, you're saying God is powerless and can't work through preaching and prayer and fellowship. He needs something extraordinary. Now, God is powerful enough that even in the early church, Acts 2.42, he used those common things, and Jesus was in their midst. Let's pray that we can recognize him and use these means and not just turn and walk away and say, he was there and I didn't know it. Because he's the one that changes our lives and our church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, paving the way for Jesus. And we thank you that you're present among us this morning in the preaching and the prayer and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Give us the eyes to recognize that and the heart to warm to you in lives that say, let me follow Jesus. Let me find in him the Messiah, new life for myself, my family, and my church, and my community. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.